This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Well, listen, I hope that you're going to settle down for an hour of good conversation. You're going to have to be responsible for being comfortable, and I'm responsible for the hour of good conversation. I am responsible because I've invited one of my favorite guests. Uh, I've talked to him on radio and television and uh, in person at events. And I wanted you to, to meet him again. If you hadn't met him before on this program, Reverend Larry Fultz uh, is a fellow who is the director of the Arizona Interfaith Mission. And uh, that, uh, that organization has been represented here in the past by a number of, uh, of religious organizations uh, and also some people who just simply are fond of, uh, of the group. Reverend Larry Fultz, you continue to tell me you're going to retire. Mm-hmm. And obviously you cannot be trusted, Larry. Because <laughs> that's been going on now for how long? Well, I've tried three times and I just... <laughs> I've not found the secret. <laughs> the Arizona Interfaith Organization. Yeah. Been around for how long? 1995. When it started, did you have any idea that there would be as many different faiths represented as you have now? No, not at all. We uh, uh, had an interesting start. Uh, Dr. Paul Eppinger was in charge of the Arizona Ecumenical Council at that time, and uh, that was an organization of Christian uh, churches and pastors and leaders, and um, a fellow by the name of uh, Darrell Anderson from the LDS community came, that's the Latter-day Saints, and asked if uh, their group could join our organization uh, as a Christian uh, movement. And the ecumenical council turned them down. Yeah, why? why? <laughs> they said they weren't Christian. So, uh, so Paul came to me and said, "We've got to start a interfaith." And I said, "I've just gotten connected with the ecumenical council, and I want me to go with interfaith." But we did, and we started with six faiths, and it was just a uh, temporary kind of a thing. Uh, It was just something that we decided that we'd like to learn from other people about their faith. It was the Catholics, Protestants, the Baha'i, the Hindu, uh, the Muslim, uh, the Jewish, and uh, the LDS. Did you have resistance? Oh, yes. Lots of (laughs) resistance. (laughs) But I'll tell you how smart I was. I was in charge of bringing the food for the first time. Uh-huh. And we had a Jewish man there and, and, uh, uh, and Imam Samsuddin uh, from the Muslim faith, and I brought bacon and ham for breakfast. <laughs> so that's how smart I was at the beginning of this process. One of the reasons why it is that the interfaith movement began to develop so that everybody would understand those, those elements. Absolutely. And uh, we have a banquet every year, as you well know, because you're our MC, and we're so grateful for that. But um, we have to be very cautious and uh, conscious 
of people's uh, cuisine. Well, as the MC, and I've said this so many times because it's a feeling that I have every time I'm on that stage in front of 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 people in a convention center in Mesa, Arizona. And I look out and I think every single time, this is what it's about. Yeah. This is what it's supposed to be. I think this is what Jesus and Mohammed and... And, and Abraham and all of those folks, at least in their better times, had in mind. Because here's people sitting at all of these banquet tables, and some of them with Roman collars, some of them with robes, some of them with turbans. And, you know, all of them together, a warm, loving atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And all the years that I have been the master of ceremonies. I've never seen a fist fight break out. <laughs> no, no, it's a very cordial group, uh, Pat, and people that, that really love one another, truly, really care about each other. We just had a tragedy in our organization recently. Oh. Yeah, and you were aware of that. But and share with the audience what happened, because many of them uh, remember the woman and her family. Yeah because she's been so active in the community and, and has been she was here. on the show. Yes. Yeah, Courtney Lonegram, and she had three uh, beautiful children. Uh, she is responsible for our uh, Experience Interfaith event and uh, every fall. Uh, and she um, and her two children were in a tragic car accident and were killed. But the outpouring from our interfaith community, Pat, has been overwhelming. They've raised over $50,000, and uh, one little girl was left behind because she was not in the car. Mm. She was at home. But she uh, instantly, her whole life has changed. And, uh, but, yes, it's a very loving, cordial. Uh, Courtney happened to be a Muslim, but uh, money has poured in from all faiths and all people. Well, she was on talking about the world of Islam Yes, uh, from a position— that is unusual because her Reformed. ethnic background yes. uh, is one of those that you don't expect to be speaking on behalf of the world of exactly. Islam. But that's what the interfaith movement can do. Yeah. Uh, the unexpected and also, and also as examples, this banquet that we're talking about, I, I, this isn't even why I invited Larry here. <laughs> but the banquet begins every single year. Uh, no matter who it is that they're honoring, no matter how many people are recognized for special efforts on behalf of brotherhood. Uh, but it begins with the golden rule as spoken by representatives of a number of different faiths, almost yeah. always young people, children. Yeah. Yes. And you discover, some people who were there for the first time, they discover that there's a golden rule that represents the thinking of virtually every, every faith, faith on earth. And philosophy, yes, and the sacred writings, exactly. And that's the, the common thread that brings us together. And everything that we do is based upon that principle how we treat each other, how we discuss our faiths in an open forum, in a safe zone, is all based upon the principle of the Golden Rule. Well, on this open forum, we're here to talk about why it is that that banquet still 
is such an exception to the rule? Why religions continue to harass and harangue one another and why races do the same thing? And you understand a great deal about both of those yes. categories, yeah. and we're going to be perhaps doing something about it before this hour is Good. over. But let's find out about Reverend Larry Fultz. Before he had that title, before he became reverend, <laughs> it was just Larry Fultz. Now, with a fascinating life that you're going to find out more about, fascinating life worldwide. But where did it start? Well, I grew up in Indiana. What part? Northern Indiana, two miles from the Michigan border, just about 15 miles from Notre Dame. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, right. We Irish Catholics are familiar with that. But particularly, <laughs> particularly since my son yes. uh, went to Notre Dame, Michael right. did very proudly one of the fighting well, My uncle Irish. was a head usher at the stadium, and I got to get into all the football games <laughs> for free. <laughs> we make those arrangements. You yes, know. we do. Uh, but... Uh, when you're talking about, though, a, a Catholic school like Notre Dame and Southern Methodist in another part of the country and uh, the Hebrew schools, mm -hmm. uh, and still the messages are so common yeah. about treating the rest of humanity mm -hmm the way that the golden rule suggests you should. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, we have such a difficult time with that. Well, when you were a child, did you grow up with the spirit of ecumenism, with the spirit of uh, interfaith respect? No, quite the opposite. Uh, uh, we were very uh, um, opposed to anything that would be directly conflicting with our Protestant Baptist belief. Yeah. Grew up in a Baptist family. Right. Strict Baptist. Yes, very strict. I, I, I did not play cards. I did not go to a movie. Uh, yeah, I was very strict. Dancing was out of Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you couldn't even say the word. <laughs> if you were caught dancing, that you had to get married then. <laughs> but, but that's how strict some... Yeah. Some Protestant faiths yeah. are, yeah. and other Christian faiths. So it seems as if there was a transition. It was based in your on life. legalism. Everything was on legalism. You know, you had to do this and do this, do this, can't do this, can't do that. But that's how you grew up, that's and exactly. that's what you believe. Yeah, exactly. Until when? 21. What happened? I went to a movie. Oh. What was the movie? <laughs> Gone with the Wind in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, and you found out. It was Clark wonderful. Gable didn't give a damn. I, I found out oh. the movies weren't as bad as what I'd been told. <laughs> yeah, I was 21. I was in college, and my girlfriend and I went to Chicago and watched Gone with the Wind. But and isn't it interesting? I didn't know that as long as I've known you. Yeah. I didn't know that, that was your first film yeah. at 21 years old. And you know what? The movie is in great measure what we're talking about. Because it had to do with morality yeah, and it exactly. had to do with good works, but it also had to do with, with racism. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there are people right now in the period of time that we're in who refuse to see Gone with the Wind mm -hmm. 
and Song of the South and a number yeah. of things yeah. about that period of time because they find it to be insulting. Yeah. Insulting to uh, not only uh, African-American people, but insulting to citizens who are worried that somehow will be misunderstood. Yeah. But in that era, Pat, yeah, that was you didn't that didn't even occur to you, you know. It was just a, a historical document that we. Are we too sensitive now about those things? Um, I don't about history. That no, is. I, 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 I think we can be. I think we can make it to a point of uh, detriment because I, uh, we can't change it. There's nothing that we can change about it except we can change what happens now. I tell my kids, you know, our life, life on earth is short. It's measured in days. Don't waste this one. Mm. And so uh, my sense is that we can learn from history, but uh, by dwelling on it, and uh, uh, I think it can fester. Yeah. When you walked out of that theater, yeah. having seen Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And Guilty as hell. <laughs> <laughs> did you did yeah. you did you feel yeah. guilt because yeah. of that Baptist oh, background? Sure. Yeah, but you kind of liked the movie. Oh, I loved it. I went to a, I went to another one about a week later. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was it, were you less guilty? Uh, yes. <laughs> what happened to your Baptist background? Well, um, I began to understand that you know God's bigger than Baptists. Uh, the world is bigger than Baptists, and. Uh, I began to realize that uh, if I'm going to be effective in my life, I'm going to have to move out of my little niche where I feel comfortable. You were 21. Were you already thinking about the ministry? Yes, I was studying for ministry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And had been, and interestingly enough, had been exposed some, to people from other cultures in college and university, which was very helpful. Was uh, it a surprise to you that that you felt an interest in their faith? Not really. I I always knew there was something beyond. Really? Yeah. I I, I always felt that beyond Christianity. Well, not to put down my faith, but to understand that there are people in the world that do not believe as I believe at all, but are wonderful people, probably better than me in a lot of ways. And uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to meet those people. I wanted to, to, to rub shoulders with those people. I, uh, there's always been that, that interest. I remember, um, um, I remember as a young boy, I had a friend in eighth grade who was from um, uh, Ukraine. And he became my best friend. And uh, he was Muslim. And uh, we had a lot in common in terms of, they were very strict. They couldn't do movies and yes. dance. Was it the first Muslim you met? The first Muslim I ever met in my life. But we were just really great friends. I really loved Joe. Joe Urbianski was his name. <laughs> and I loved Joe. Did you go to his house? Yes, yes. Were you welcome? Oh, much, very much. Was he welcome in your home? No. Unfortunately not. No. My mother and father were very strict, you know, and they thought it was very unusual that Joe Warbianski would be my best friend <laughs> in the eighth grade. 
but I was little and he was big, so I needed him. But they could probably forgive you an eighth grade dalliance with uh, a buddy and uh, uh, something that probably did not concern them for the future of your almighty soul. But when you were 21, studying for the ministry, and you went to not just one movie, yeah. but you continued to go back to yeah. the movies, yeah. did you break other rules? Uh, I probably did. I, I probably did. Yeah. Okay, but how did your family, I always wonder yeah. when, when someone like you has this kind of, if we call it a revelation, that there are other ways to think about uh, lifestyles uh, and humanity. What did they say? Well, they were disappointed. They felt I'd left the faith. As interestingly enough, though, probably 10 years later, uh, they were going to movies and playing cards with me. So... (laughs) Uh, what they the realized transi- that what was the transition in there? Well, the life? transition was that they realized that I was still Larry Fultz, their son, who loved God, who was still a Christian, but did not get caught up with all of these legalistic uh, principles. Mm-hmm. And uh, my faith in God was still firm and strong. And when that they realized that, that it was not based upon what I did or didn't do, it was based upon who I am. Who, who I was, yeah. Did they change churches? Now, I'm talking about the, the buildings. No. Not necessarily no. did they leave Left the, the Baptist faith. No, stayed in the same home church, yeah. Different ministers who, who also transitioned, Pat. Those early days in the 40s when it was, you know, <laughs> yeah, but they transitioned too. They, you bet. And by Baptist pastors... I'll go to movies now and play cards <laughs> and dance. <laughs> Do you look back on that period of time in your life and theirs as uh, being something that you resent? I did for a while, but then I understood as I became an adult. I did resent it, of course. Yeah, you do resent it. All my friends were going to the movies. They were going to the eighth grade dance. I couldn't go. Um, I had a girlfriend. Couldn't go. So yes, of course I resented it. But um, as I grew older, um, you know, I didn't. I didn't pay much attention to it. I mean, I didn't didn't spend time dwelling on that at all. Those limitations still exist uh, in a number of faiths, yes, in a they number do. of congregations. Yes, yes they do. Uh, yeah. And do you? Uh, do you want to proselytize uh, and and send a message to those people that gone with the wind is still out there? <laughs> well, I just I, I know I feel so much freer in my spirit. Oh, really? Oh my, yes. Fear uh, of what? Uh, freer. Oh, freer. Freer. Oh. Yes. So much freer in my spirit, and, and not the fear that you know God's going to come and stomp on me because I've... Is your relationship with God a different one than you better, had then? It's greater. Much greater. Because that fearsome creature with the lightning bolts... Yeah, yeah. Uh, is, that was, that's not what... That's not my I, understanding I it was of God. about. Yeah. 
And that's why I'm saying it's much freer because I, I understand God as my, as my daddy. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Loving. Loving, yeah. Caring and, for me. And protecting yeah. you. Not, not always saying, it's okay, Larry, uh, but understanding that I am human. I do make mistakes, but he still loves me. Yeah. You, uh, you also have transitioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, into a family man that is about as universal as anybody I know. Yeah. When I saw your family on stage, Mm -hmm. and I think everybody was there that night. All but one. All but one. One of our family members that lives in the state of Washington could not come. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those Washington. Yeah. yeah. They're weird in here. But tell everybody about your family and how you have now uh, made that transition spiritually uh, as a young man from Indiana, and you have opened the vistas now much wider than most people, I think, probably have in their lives because you are now embracing how many faiths in the interfaith organization? Uh, 20, oh, about 25. I defy most people in our audience to even be able to identify 25 yeah, yeah. different faiths. Yeah. But you have them. They all share thoughts and beliefs and elements of their faith, uh, and they do it successfully. Everything that we do, all 25 faiths have input as to what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Yeah. Uh, but you also have this great diversity in your family, and I want you to yeah. tell everybody okay. about the Fultz clan. Yeah. Well, it started back in, in the 80s. Uh, our son, Tim, who later went to Africa and fell and, and was killed. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, he came home, and uh, he said, Dad, he was at uh, college, and he said, there's a Baptist minister. And, of course, my ears perked up immediately. <laughs> and he said, he's from Nigeria. And they're closing the dorms down for the summer. He doesn't have any place to stay. Where, in Nigeria? No, here in, here in Phoenix. Oh. My son was going to Southwestern Baptist Bible College. I see. And the, the Nigerian pastor was there. And they were closing down the dorms for the summer. And he said, I told him he could come and stay with us. And I said, well, Tim, that's fine. He's going to have to sleep in your room. And I thought that would probably last about a week, and that would be over with. But I want to tell you, our family fell in love with Elijah. He was a fantastic, phenomenal guy. And we just loved this guy. And uh, he was with us for three years. Didn't ever go back to the dorm. (laughs) And he lived with our family for three years. And we got him education, uh, got him sent back to Nigeria. He wrote to me and he said, I have a son, Jonathan, that I want to send to live with you. And uh, I How said... How old was the son? Uh, he was just graduated from high school. Oh. Getting ready to go into college. So uh, he came and lived with us, got him through college, got his master's from Grand Canyon. Um, so in 1995... I went to the church where our son fell and was killed, took a picture, large picture of him, and took my doctor with me. In the meantime, that was in Congo. And then we went to Nigeria to visit Elijah. And when I was there, Elijah said to me, 
Now, I don't want Jonathan to marry a white girl, and I don't want him to marry a black American girl. I want him to marry a Nigerian girl. So I came home and told uh, Jonathan that, and um, he kept bringing these girls home, and I said, no, Jonathan, that's not going to work. And finally, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't stand it. He called me one day, and he said, Dad, you'll never believe what happened to me. And uh, I said, well, what happened to you? And he said, I met this Nigerian girl and her girlfriend in the frozen food place at the, at the market, and she was talking in Yoruba, my language, to this friend. He said, look at that black man. Isn't he a hunk? <laughs> And he said, I talked back to them in Yoruba, and they took off. <laughs> oh. Scared them to death. <laughs> and later they met up at the, uh, uh, at the cash out and became acquainted. And, uh, well, long story short, they got married. I married them. And here's the fun part. Her father couldn't come to the wedding. So I had to be her father. And I had to learn a tremendous amount of Nigerian protocol in order to be able to give her away, and I married her, gave her away. But the real part of this whole thing was after the wedding, which is a phenomenal experience. And if you've never been into a Nigerian wedding, it is phenomenal. It is the most fun in the world. And I had to learn all the protocol, and they taught me, took me about a month to learn it all, what I was my role as the father to this girl. And now they have two precious kids and my grandkids, and we love them to death, they're an intricate part of our family, tremendous part of our family. So, yeah, well, but, but wait a minute, he called you dad. Yeah, he calls me dad. He's, yeah, he calls me dad, and they call me my grandpa, and, and she calls me ma, dad, and, and so the, his wife. So, yeah, they're our family. They are our family. Okay, but now what did his father say about the transition that was taking place in America. Oh, he was all for it. Yeah, he trusted me. He was all for it. I brought him over for the wedding. and uh, um, But he had his own prejudices. Oh, yes, he had his own prejudice issues. Yeah, yeah, he did. And but did, it was important to him as a father to that his son would marry a Nigerian girl. Yes, yeah. but now has that in any way changed? No. He's gone. He's passed. But he made that contact, yeah. though, with America, yeah. very, very close contact yeah. with American family. Yes. A white American right, family. Right. But it was important to him for his culture and for his grandkids, for him, for his son to marry a Nigerian girl. Yes. Now, it's the same thing that takes place religiously. This was cultural. That wasn't religiously. That was cultural for him. It was not because... Uh, of a, being white or anything else. It was a cultural, she, he wanted her to be a Nigerian girl. Yeah. But it, the same takes place for religious. For instance, I remember the day my daughter came home and said she was in love with a Jewish boy. And what happened in the Fultz family? Well, there was great mourning. <laughs> Until we met him. And Pat... I would not want to have missed the opportunity of having a Jewish son-in-law. He had never experienced Christmas. We had never experienced Yom Kippur. We had never experienced Shavuot, Passover. Or How did his family feel about you guys? 
Well, they weren't very great about it either. <laughs> what is it, though, about the, the elemental uh, suspicion that we have, uh, the limitations and understanding? Uh, why is it so difficult for uh, a Nigerian man to just simply see, for different cultural reasons, different colors for uh, you for you as 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 an american religious uh, person a minister mm -hmm. talking about brotherhood yeah and talking about it within the scope of a, a, an altar with a cross behind you yeah. and there's there's one of those original jews <laughs> <laughs> right the, yeah. on the cross. Yeah. Well, I, I can explain to you. I know where you're going with this. I was on a radio show about a month ago with a rabbi, and he explained it to me that he would be very. It would just he didn't know I had a Jewish son-in-law, and he said it'd be very confer, conf, uh, confounding for him if his daughter came home and said she was in love with a Gentile boy or a Baptist boy, and I asked him well, why was that. He, said, he was afraid that. The Jewish culture, the Jewish religion, if all that happened and continued to happen, would fade away. And that was the same concern that, that Elijah had, for whatever reason, and it, it's, it's not a real thing. So then I told him, I said, well, let me give you a real life experience. My daughter came home and said she was in love with a Jewish boy. But it has been a phenomenal journey together uh, with them. And... Uh, uh, their children taking in both aspects of Christian faith and Jewish faith. And, and um, uh, Easter's kind of a tough time because Good Friday, because of their Passover and getting to our service and their service and so forth. <laughs> but Christmas, he had never had a Christmas experience. And that first Christmas was the most, we have, our family does a big Christmas. And it was really exciting. He was so excited. He's like a kid in a candy store. But it was fabulous. It was wonderful. I've learned so much. I'm a richer person because of my Jewish son and But what is it about humanity? Yeah. It, it isn't your family, you having grown up in a strict Baptist family. Uh, it isn't because of the Irish Catholic family that I grew up in. All of them seem to have those decisions that have to be made and they have such a difficult time with acceptance. Because we're right and they're wrong. And that's basically the... It's been going on. Going on forever. 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 Since, right. yeah. since the caveman all yeah. said you're living well, in the wrong cave. Since Cain and Abel. <laughs> but you would, would you not think now, would you not think particularly since you are a teacher of brotherhood, and understanding and love. Wouldn't you think that after all of these centuries that we would have been able to toss that aside? Well, you as know, you have with the interfaith organization. You would hope. And that's of course what we try to do. We don't try to we don't try to take people's faith away from them. We just try to help people understand other people's faith. And all the misunderstandings, because there's so many misunderstandings about Irish Catholics. There's so much misunderstanding about Muslims. And so we try to, we try to delicately 
cure those misunderstandings by events and things that we do to provide understanding, real understanding. Hear from the practicing Muslim what they really believe, what it means to them, what it means to them to be a practicing Hindu, a, a Jew, uh, a Sikh, uh, a Jain, and so forth. So it's like trying to move mud uphill sometimes, but we, we keep after it, and it's the right thing to do, and uh, we see progress. We see little bright places here. And you as a Christian, you have to acknowledge, uh, Larry, as a Christian minister, that the idea of that resistance of keeping that faith and, and that race and that nationality over in a comfortable distance is not what Jesus was talking about. No. I, you know, uh, there was a, a scripture where the disciples were with Jesus and, and um, there was a group of people here who were healing people, helping people. And the disciples came to Jesus concerned because they said, they're not with us. And Jesus said, well, if they're, if, they're, if they're not with us and they're not against us, they're with us. They're helping people. So don't be concerned about them. You know, The apostle Paul said the same thing in the Philippian letter uh, when they, people were doing things and uh, they weren't part of that little niche. And Paul says, look, if they're not against us, if they don't oppose us, they're with us. And so I think, the, think Christians are not the only people in the world who want to change lives to be better. Muslims do, Hindus do, Jains do. Isn't there an innate kind of, of lesson to be had in virtually all of those faiths? Absolutely. And here's the thing. I say, and I always say to our people, if religious people can't bring peace and harmony to the world, who's going to do it? The political world can't do it. Educational world can't do it. If we are the only going, to, if if we are the people that we say we are, we're the only people that can really bring about peace. I'm looking at a picture of your family. Yeah, uh, that was taken, I believe on the stage of the banquet, banquet that it yeah. was referring to before. Yeah. The first time I had seen them all assembled, and to tell you the truth, I thought somebody had opened the door and said, okay, the interfaith group has to move over here because the UN is coming <laughs> yeah. in uh, for for a meeting here yeah. because, the, okay, daughter and and Tim, Tim, Russian heritage, both live in St. Petersburg, Russia. Right. Yeah, they're there now. Uh, okay, now is Tim the Jewish fellow that he, you were talking no, about? No, he's the Russian. Well, there are Russian no, Jews. No, 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 he's not. No, he's not. Okay, so you have Sean. Yeah. Both Americans. Right. And both Christian. They live in Washington, the state of Washington. Oh, oh those Washingtonians. Yeah. He didn't make it to this. Yeah. Uh, okay, you have Jeremy's son, and he's a practicing Christian. Jonathan, son and Clara, both from Nigeria, both practicing Christians. Right. Holly, daughter and Russ. Russ is Jewish. Russ is Jewish. Holly is Christian. Yeah. Still married after how long? 
They just celebrated their 25th anniversary. How is that possible when you have a Jew and a Christian? It's how do they decide about the children? Well, it's, it's oh. easy. It's it's not difficult at all. They've embraced both uh, entities, and uh, so it's um, the children enjoy going to both. You know, and are maybe better off for it. Well, I think so. I, I remember my. One trip to Israel, when I brought back a, a, a candlestick, uh, one of the, the can't think of the word, the candelabras, not the uh, you know, the, uh, but the, and how excited the children were when I brought that back to the family uh, from Israel. Uh, yeah, there's so much because they, I always say everything that Christians have, we we stole from the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> And so do they. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Justin, yeah. a son. Yeah. And Kumiko. Uh huh. Kumiko. Uh-huh. Japanese. Japanese Buddhist. Yeah. And son Justin yeah. has retained his Christianity. Uh-huh. What about what about that mixture? Do they get along? They do. They do. They just had a little son. I've been told it's impossible. No. And, and you know. It's impossible if you use the word tolerate. I have often said tolerate is the worst word in the world. Because what you tolerate, you cannot change. If you're willing to tolerate something, you'll never change it. But if you're willing to embrace it, if you're willing to acknowledge somebody else having this wonderful I get excited when I can celebrate uh, a holiday with my son-in-law that's Jewish because I know how important it is to him. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, when you embrace the fact that it's meaningful to Kumiko to have her Buddhist faith, then I think it's important. And have you learned anything uh, that enhanced your life from having a Buddhist daughter-in-law? Oh, absolutely. Well, not only that, but Japanese. You know, she is the most, um, when things are flying apart at my house, she's, she's that, it's, it's okay, you know. <laughs> she brings serenity? She brings serenity and peace and, you know, from her Buddhist background, yeah. And listen, I haven't even finished, folks. <laughs> this is just the Fultz family, <laughs> and there's a nephew, Rodney Falberg, and Tahira. Tahira, yeah. Tahira is Muslim. Uh huh. Rodney is Christian. Yeah. Now, see, there's a mixture that internationally and politically, yeah, that th- that would be impossible in some parts of the world. She's from Pakistan. Oh, yeah, and uh, wonderful girl. I love her so much. She is a delightful girl. She just graduated from college. We just had to took them out for dinner Saturday. Had a lovely time together. Uh, she is a, just a delightful young lady. Beautiful. But now you talk about that part of the world now. Did she live in Pakistan? Oh, yeah. She grew up in Pakistan. Uh, okay. Much as we talk about Israel and Palestine. She's been here four years. Okay. Here we have a part of the world with millions upon millions of people. Pakistan and India still have this uneasy relationship, mm-hmm. sometimes militant. Yes. Uh, and you think, 
their neighbors, and and yet because of this political decision in two different religions, uh, it's it's a, a virtually a perpetual war mm-hmm. that goes on. That's why you're here, Larry. Try to explain that <laughs> to me and to everybody uh, else that's listening. I wish I could. You know, um, I think for me, I'll tell you how I have done it. I have embraced the person, not their religion, not their culture, the person. I've embraced them. I I look at them as a person who has uh, something that I can learn from that perhaps I can give back to them. And uh, I've traveled around the world. I, I I remember distinctly being in Lagos, Nigeria. I was with Jonathan's brother, my son's brother, who happens to be in the States now. Um, We were downtown Lagos, and it was getting dark. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, (laughs) I was the only white guy around. Mm -hmm. And I had that amazing epiphany of what it feels like for a black man to be in white America. And I empathized. Deeply. You looked around, there was nobody that looked like you. Nothing. Nobody. Didn't embrace the same food, same language, same skin color. I was safe. Were you uneasy? No. I was not uneasy. Why? I, I was with my, my, uh, bro- my son's brother, uh, brother and, I, I, and his family and people that loved me, and I loved them. Uh, But it was just, all of a sudden, it just dawned on me, here I am, the odd man out. And uh, it, it, it was something that I learned very quickly, uh, that when I see somebody in that kind of a situation in my country, I have empathy for them, because I remember that moment that I had in the streets of Lagos, Nigeria. But all too many of those people in the neighborhoods that uh, are primarily identified by one color, Mm -hmm. by one race, Mm -hmm. there's great uneasiness when folks find themselves there and they are more than uncomfortable. We don't like difference. People don't like difference. What is it about that, I don't though? know. I love it. I love to embrace difference. But people just are afraid of it because it's unfamiliar territory. It's unfamiliar turf. And uh, we are turf keepers. Uh, is it a flaw in humanity? It is, indeed. It is, a, it is part of the fallen part of humanity. Where did it come from? Has it always been around? Well, Cain was mad because Abel's sacrifice was accepted, and so he killed him. And but they were the same. Yeah, They, they exactly. looked the They're same. Brothers. Everything was yeah. the same. Same family. Everything was the same. But it's just that we have this ego system going on in our, in our, in our bodies, in our minds, that uh, doesn't allow us, other people, to be... <laughs> as good as or the same as as we are, even though they're separate and different. 
It would be easier for me to understand if it was a limitation within the structure of one race. Something wrong with the DNA of white people or whatever. But not just tribalism in Africa, which can be savage and horrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this village attacking that village. And this Baptist against that Baptist. (laughs) But in this country, people who have actually told me that they had difficulties in their neighborhoods, young black citizens telling me that they had difficulty growing up and going to what is primarily an all-black school because they weren't black enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They weren't even of mixed race, but right. they happened to be light-skinned, light-skinned yeah. African-American yeah. people, Negro yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. That, that's something I can't I, comprehend. I, I can't either, except that uh, it's been a part of our culture and part of our people who we are. Um, I think we're getting better at it. I know we're getting better at it. Uh, I mean, we're much farther along than we were back in the 1940s and 50s. Are uh, we really getting better at it with demonstrations that have to remind well, us that black lives matter and, and that there are a stunning number of black citizens unarmed who are killed under different circumstances? It's not a generality that all of them are constantly innocent of whatever it is that they're accused of, but those crimes... Those crimes against humanity, if not against the the law of the community, uh, create a barrier that seems to continue to grow. Well, you you asked me earlier. Um, oh, now I forgot my thought, but uh, I think I think the I think we are getting better. Um, you asked me earlier about uh, history. And I said that sometimes it can fester. And I think that some of these demonstrators and so forth still allows that history to fester. And it's not what's happening today particularly, it's what happened then. And as much as what's happening, you know and I know that we're farther along in race relations than we were 50 years ago. In many ways. Yes, in many ways. There are some ways and yet we have to go. But the fact that you look back at history and want reparation for all of that can fester. And I think that's part of what is happening among young people today. But Larry Fultz... They didn't live back in the 40s and the 50s like you and I did, and we've seen the progress that we've made. This may surprise you, Larry. I am not among the young people in our population. That does surprise me. I know it's a shocker. But I will I'm tell you. I'm sitting down. But having been, <clears throat> having been on this planet now, and having acquired a great deal of information just simply because of what I'm fortunate enough to do yeah. in in the dissemination of ideas with talk shows on radio and television, uh, you do a lot of reading. You do mm-hmm. a lot of research. Yeah. And yet, it was only this year, the hundredth anniversary of Tulsa. Yeah. That I really found out. I knew that I had heard that there was an incident of some, and I thought it was somebody in a neighborhood. But my God, that was one of the massacres 
of our time. Pat, and I'm sorry to say it, it happened with me this year too. I was not wow. aware of that terrible, terrible thing. I just wasn't aware of it. I knew it happened, but not the extent of it, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's, it's, I can't believe that my country would allow that to happen. Well, so here's a couple of white old guys yeah. who are just discovering it. Imagine if you're a 21-year-old <clears throat> African-American and you haven't been even in the state of Oklahoma and there's a special on television that tells you about the massacre mm -hmm. of all of those citizens. It, it, primarily, it started because of the success yes. of these these citizens yes. in Tulsa who had their own Wall Street. Yes, yes, yes. yeah, yeah. And what is that guy? Well, what is that woman, 21 years old? Would you blame them for resenting us? And then we go back to the Native American problem. Please. Oh. Uh, so. we're, we're living in Arizona, by the way, where this broadcast <laughs> is taking place. Yeah. The home of dozens of tribes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you've got something that I want, and I'm going to take it. And so how do you justify something like that in 2021? Yeah, we still do it. Is it an acquired... It's a learned behavior. Okay, because it is often said, and said with a degree of purity, I hope, that children are not born bigots. Yeah, exactly. They have to learn to be yeah. from somebody else. Yeah, it's a learned behavior. We get it from our, we get it from our parents, unfortunately. Uh, uh, we, we get it from... Uh, uh, we get it from our political world, and I'm sorry to say we get it from our religious world. Has your Asian daughter-in-law uh, ever talked to you about this subject? We talk about it all the time. Well, particularly now that there is a, Asian, a yeah. new awareness. She's fearful, <clears throat> deeply she, fearful. Wait, wait, your daughter-in-law yeah. living here yeah. in... A, 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 essentially a white western occidental family and she knows fear she has fear because of what she sees happening reads what's happening she's not fearful of our family of course but no but she's, she's afraid because of, someone she's, will she's recognize a, her she's a, as, a, as, as an, an asian. asian right she goes out to the public uh, uh grocery store to the market to, uh, to the movie or wherever of course, she feels vulnerable. That's not even what this country is supposed to Absolutely be about. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But again, we, we have these learned behaviors from people. And you know, the thing that I think is important, Pat, <laughs> it's a minuscule part of our, of, our, of our nation. But it's enough that can cause a great deal of harm and pain. It's minuscule in terms of overall the population. And there are marvelous stories, and I, I write about them in the newspaper, a golden rule moment. People around our nation who are doing absolutely marvelous things for people that are different than them, different faith, different religions, different culture, different ethnicity, different color. They do absolutely marvelous things. But what we hear on the news are the people that are doing this killing. 
Was there a time when you hated those Salvadorans that kidnapped you and held you for ransom when you were in Central America? No, I didn't hate them, but I was sure afraid. And it just so happened that that happened on a Friday. That Sunday I was speaking at the First Baptist Church of, uh, of San Salvador, and happened to be that there was a man there that was the assistant chief of police of the whole country of El Salvador. Mm -hmm. He came up to me later, and uh, he said that uh, he'll do everything he can to help me. Six months later, he called me and said he was now in charge. He was the man in charge, and he wanted me to come back to El Salvador. And uh, I said, I don't think I want to do that. I did later. He took me to that very spot that had happened, and it was cathartic. How long were you a captive, you and your interpreter? Uh, we were there. Um, happened at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we were, we, we were escaped about noon. Mm. So about four hours. Mm. Yeah. And it was a miracle, miracle escape. But, um, but yeah, um, I, I was fearful, very fearful. I didn't hate them, though. Tell everybody that they're invited. We've only got two minutes. Tell everybody they're invited to this big event coming up in October. October 28th is our Golden Rule Banquet. Uh, our featured guest this year is Marie Osmond. She has, been, she has done some marvelous things in the world. We're going to be presenting her our Founders uh, Award, the Dr. Paul Eppinger Award, as uh, a person who has done a great deal of peacemaking and interfaith work around the world. And if you saw Donnie and Marie in Vegas, it would cost you a fortune for really good seats. But you can get into this banquet. For $95, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, or a table for uh, $680, I believe, 720 Who do they get in touch with? Uh, they can go to our website, azifm.org, and go under events, and there you'll see Golden Rule Banquet and you can buy tickets for it. It's a terrific evening, and you're invited when you live in St. Louis, you're listening to this. If you live in Guam, you're invited to this. Come over, meet Larry. If somebody came up to you at the banquet that was listening to this broadcast in El Salvador and said, I was one of those soldiers, <laughs> no, would you be able oh, to yes. embrace that person? Oh, yes, I would. I surely would. I really would. I remember when the Pope went to visit the man who tried to shoot him and kill him. Oh. Uh, yes. I thought, how can a man do that? But I understand it now. I well, can't. I'll tell you this. I hope that as a result of meeting Reverend Larry Fultz on The God Show, you understand that neighbor a little bit better. You know, the one that yeah. looks different? Yeah. And the one that goes... To, to, to worship on a different day. Mm -hmm. That's what the God Show today has been about. Maybe we've started something here, Larry Fultz and me. I'm Pat McMahon.